So the reading today is from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3, starting on page 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed, according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky, to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be light sorry, let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. And he also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which water teems and moves about. In it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. 
and it was so. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Well, now I need to tell you that as we um, get into this first page of the Bible, uh, we immediately enter into an area of controversy. Uh, It's a contemporary debate, a debate about how old is the earth? Uh, Are we talking about six 24-hour days when we look at this part of the Bible? And I'm aware that in a room of this size, there are people that are hitting this with very different expectations. Uh, So some of you will be really hoping that what I do is refute modern scientific theories about the origins of the earth, right? And uh, to do that in the most clear way. Uh, Some of you will be hoping that I give you the apparatus to integrate uh, your biblical worldview with a scientific worldview and seamlessly put those two together so you can live with uh, comfort in relation to both those things. Well, you may be here today and you may not be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you may not call yourself a Christian. And one of the reasons for that may be because of your worldview. That is, your worldview basically is a modern scientific thing and you can't see how that can accommodate a biblical perspective that includes a God who is the creator. Uh, We all hit this from different angles. Now, what I want to say is it's not wrong Uh, to ask questions about the connection between the Bible and science. But can I say that if you're wanting to understand Genesis chapter 1, that is fundamentally the wrong question to be asking. It's not the right question to be asking. Let me try and explain that by way of analogy. I want you to imagine that you're a first-year medical student, all right? You've just come through your first semester of study and you're coming for your first Anatomy 101 exam right halfway through the year and for the first time in this medical school's history the professor of medicine that teaches anatomy says to you class you're allowed to bring the textbook on anatomy in to the exam right open book exam right and all the students rejoice they celebrate in their hearts that they'll have the book there with them and i want you to imagine that you're one of those students you turn up for this exam and all these first year medical students are hovering around outside the exam room all clutching you know, the 101 textbook recommended by the professor to take in, everyone confident. And you, as a first-year med student, notice one of your friends, right, across the the crowded sort of foyer waiting to go in, who has a book that is not the recommended textbook. And you think, what on earth is going on? You know, you can only take one book in, that's not it. And so you go over to have a look, and you discover that as you get close to this person, the book they are clutching in their hand is this book, right? Cookery for the hospitality industry, right? Cookery. And you think, you say, you idiot, you got the wrong book. This will not do you any good at all. And your friend looks at you with a puzzled look on their face and says, no, 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 you don't understand. Right? This is a, right, an exam on anatomy, and we all know you are what you eat. All right? <laughs> now, You're not totally convinced by that argument, uh, but you can see the tangential connection between... Like, we know that what we eat affects the way our bodies function. I mean, 
but it's not going to help the person all that much. Can I say, it's, it's a very similar sort of issue when you come to the book of Genesis. Uh, these opening chapters are not written to explain a scientific worldview. <laughs> They're not there for that purpose. So to come with it with that sharp question is actually misplaced. Not a wrong question, but it's just not the question uh, that this part of the Bible is primarily seeking to answer. In fact, this part of the Bible is seeking to answer much more fundamental questions. It's a word from God that is completely accurate and trustworthy. And the more important questions it answers are these. Questions about who God is. Questions about who you are and your purpose in this world. An explanation about why the world is like it is. Uh, an understanding of how our relationship with God in this world is meant to function. Insights as you go through these chapters, particularly as you get to chapter 3, about why the world is such a really strange mixture of beauty and uh, grace and delight, but at the same time, a place of pain and hate and sickness and death. See, these are, the, these are the core questions, actually, we need answers to. And they're the questions that this part of the Bible seeks to address. So rather than impose our questions on the Bible, uh, today and next week, uh, what I want to do is look at this first chapter of the Bible and see what God wants to say to us in this part of, the, part of his word and help us to gain insights in that way. The, the part of the Bible we're looking at for these two weeks is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. And you may think it's a strange place to draw a line. I want to show you why I've, why I've done that. Um, if you've got your Bibles there, just flip open to chapter 2, verse 4. And what you see there is um, this statement. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the, so the account of the heavens and the earth. Um, originally, the Bible didn't have verse numbers or chapter numbers. It was a, you know, a literary um, a series of, of words and uh, um, ideas that are put together in sort of a form. And so literary devices are used to tell you where the turning points are in the story. And this statement, this is the account of, is the literary device that's used throughout the book of Genesis. Uh, so if you went to uh, chapter 5, verse 1, uh, we'll see then again, there's, this is a written account. Chapter 6, verse 9, this is the account. Chapter 11, verse 25, this is the account. At each point, it marks a significant transition in what is being told, a sort of block of literature. So what we're doing for two weeks is just focusing on the first block in the book of Genesis, which speaks of the creator God. I'm going to pray. Uh, as we just get into it, there's an outline of the leaflet that will give you an idea where I'm heading. And uh, so let me pray and then let's get tucked into it. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you so much uh, that you speak to us. You speak to us of important things. And we pray that as we consider your word now, you'll give us real clarity uh, on your word. Speak to our minds and hearts so that we'll know what it means to live in your world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you heard Genesis chapter 1 read. 
uh, up to chapter 2, verse 3, what were your first impressions as you heard that being read? Now, I know many of you will have read it before, uh, but how did you feel as it was being read? In the beginning. Now, if you were writing the world's best-selling book, would you start with that, you know, uh, in the beginning? Uh, or you, maybe as you heard it read, you thought, it's fairly repetitious. That seems to sort of repeat the same idea again and again and again, you know, or a little almost childish in the way in which it's framed. I, I want to suggest to you that it's far from being that, that it's actually a very sophisticated work of literature and that that sophistication, once you understand it, points you to the key understanding or the message of this part of the Bible. So I don't normally do this, but I just want to tuck into some of the, um, uh, the technicalities of this part so you can see what's going on. You would have heard the use of the number seven over and over again. Uh, in the Bible, seven tends to point to wholeness or perfection or the ideal. And you heard it, didn't you? Seven days. Uh, in fact, the first sentence in the Hebrew language has seven words. The second sentence has 14 words. And if you're good at your times table, you get the point, right? 14 words. Um, and God made seven times. It was so, seven times. It was good, seven times. Uh, even the way the, the, the days are structured, the first day corresponds with the fourth day, the second day with the fifth day, the third day with the sixth day. There's a sense of setting it up and filling it, setting it up and filling it that you see as you go through the details. Each day has the same fundamental structure that you can pick up. So if you take the first day, uh, we have the command from God, verse 3, let there be light. We get the second stage, the fulfilment, and there was light. We get the explanation, uh, verse 4, the light was good. And then we get that uh, day formula at the end. There was evening, there was morning, the first day. It uh, just keeps building in that sort of way uh, to reinforce what's going on. Now, if I said to you there was one word in this chapter that gives you the key idea for what's in this chapter, just one word, which word would you have picked? Which word? Well, I want you to just swap that word with the person next to you. You won't have to yell it out or own up in any way. One word that captures the big idea of Genesis chapter 1. What is it, right? I'll give you five seconds each. This won't take you long, right? One word. Okay, you've had your five seconds each. The one word that I think captures the big idea in Genesis chapter 1 is... Not creation, right? but God. God. Okay, some of you are cheer cheering yourselves on, you're smiling knowingly at the person next to you. Well done. Okay, but, but he's, he's the hero of this part of the Bible, isn't he? In fact, the whole Bible. But it's very clear here God is mentioned 35 times in this part of the Bible. Again, if, you're, if your times tables are good, you'll work out the significance of that in terms of seven times five. Here's the subject of almost every sentence. Let's, let's look at who God is, right? He exists before anything, right? In the beginning, God, right? He's not created. He is there. 
Right? God is there, and then creation is next. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, it is God who brings the universe into existence, which really captures something of his extraordinary nature, doesn't it? You know, like, um, the vastness of our universe points us to God. Uh, I googled this, so it must definitely be true. Uh, but the, um, uh, I read on Google that, the, that they estimate that there are over 400 billion stars in the universe. Yeah, it's, isn't that extraordinary? And 170 million galaxies. Now, I can't get my head around that. But we're talking about the God who brought that into existence. But it's not just the vastness. It's the intricacy of what God has made. And you pick that up whenever you study or look at a spider's web. And the fine work that goes into that, or if you're more scientifically minded, you know, something like subatomic sequencing, you know, the, the, the detailed depth of that. We're talking about the, the same God who rules over it all. It's no wonder the psalmist says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God because so they do. And we see that everything is created for a purpose. Did you hear that echo as we went through chapter 1? And it was good, 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 until you get to humankind, and then it's very good, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Now, at this point, we're not, it's not a moral statement, you know, good as opposed to degenerate or bad. That's not the point being made in this part of the, the text. It's saying... It fulfills a purpose. It, it's um, full of meaning and intention, and it achieves that. Uh, so in Isaiah forty-five eighteen, it describes the creator God in these terms. He who created the heavens and the earth, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He didn't create it to be empty, but he formed it to be inhabited. In fact, all, all modern-day scientific endeavor stems from this understanding of God making the world with purpose. That's the way it flows. It is good. But the goodness of what God has created also does reflect the nature of his character. Uh, That is, to live in this world is to know that God, by his very nature, is generous, he is gracious, he is full of integrity and love. And you see that in these opening chapters, at the wonder of creation, and therefore the creator who must have made it. Now, I think it's tempered when you get to chapter 3, and you see people turning their back on God, because we live in a wonderful world that is flawed, uh, but nonetheless the character of God stands firm. He is good. Did you notice that God creates by his word? Here in Genesis, uh, not one scientific formula exists, and that's not the point. God creates everything from nothing by speaking. And God said, and it was so. Now, now can I say that is such a contrast from both ancient and modern ideas. So there was an ancient Babylonian creation myth 
um, called the Enuma Elish. And that, uh, that myth, I haven't read it for a while, but uh, this is my memory of it, it describes the way in which there were a plethora of gods who basically fought with one another and the creation sort of spun out of their chaotic warfare with one another. Uh, so my memory is uh, that one of the gods got into a sword fight with another god, chopped off his head, and that head popped off, rolled away, and formed the earth. Okay? Now, that is such a contrast with what you read here in Genesis chapter 1. There's no word of chaos here. This is a God who systematically constructs the whole universe. It also sharply contrasts with modern-day theories of the existence of our world. And so science, uh, we're told, they reach into the past uh, to explore the foundations of the world, hit a wall beyond which they can't go any further, and speculate about a big spontaneous event that must have occurred. See, it's, it's a, a speculative exploration into randomness. Uh, the Bible comes at it so vastly differently in terms of approach. Creation is no random accident or chance. God speaks. And what he says happens. That's what's going on. And the other thing that's, that's built in here, although not explored much in chapter 1, is the fact that all of creation depends on him in an ongoing way. Uh, God didn't set up, set up a self-sustaining sort of world or universe and then step back. That is, the Bible is not theistic in thinking that way. Um, the whole idea is that God is involved in his world in sustaining and upholding it every step of the way. Paul the Apostle, uh, in Acts chapter 17, he's, he's talking with the Athenians and he reflects on Genesis chapter 1 uh, in terms of the way in which these Athenians who are you know, multiple God believers, uh, how they should think about this God and the world. And Paul says to them, God gives all men life and breath and everything else. And that's built in here in these opening chapters of the Bible. Every breath you take, every beat of your heart, every message from your brain to some other part of your body, it is superintended by this God. That is who he is. Friends, this is the creator God of the Bible. Now we can spend an enormous amount of time actually exploring in more detail um, this chapter and the implications and everything like that. But what I want to do for just a few moments is to talk about what follows from this as we think about life in this world. I want to uh, spend a decent amount of time thinking about our worldview and the application of this teaching for us. Uh, we've already seen the way in which um, some of the uh, ancient religions understood uh, creation. Uh, most ancient religions had a stack of gods and they all made their particular contribution to life in this world and the way in which this world functioned. 
Now, can I say that Genesis 1 just blows that idea out of the water? Uh, There is no place for multiple gods. There is one God, and he is the God who made everything. It's reinforced in a number of ways. Um, When you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, that's the first time in the Bible that the personal name of God is used, Yahweh, the Lord God. It's the idea of naming God. In the first chapter, up up until chapter 2, verse 3, the word that is used for God is not Yahweh, but Elohim. Now, you don't need to be a Hebrew scholar, and I'm not, but the point here is that you have the generic name for God being used in chapter 1, and the personal name for God from chapter 2, verse 4 on. You might think, so what? It's actually deliberate in order to reinforce the very point that is being made here in chapter 1. The ancient world had multiple gods. They had the god of the moon, the god of the sun, the god of fertility, the god of this, the god of that, and they were all named, all right, all these gods. Here in chapter 1, did you notice that... um, uh, the moon and the sun aren't even named. They're just, what are they? They're lights, just lights. That is, they're not named because they're just creations of the one true God. And in case you're any doubt about there just being one God rather than many gods, we have the generic name for God being used here in chapter 1 rather than the personal name, right? 35 times. Who controls the heavens and the earth? The God. Right? Who made the sun and the moon? The God. Right? 35 times, just in case you're really thick. Right? The God, 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 the God. Got the message? The God, the God, the God. And you go through this chapter, you cannot get to the end of it and think there are any competitors or rivals for the one true God. See, the whole structure of it is built in so you understand what's going on. Deliberate. And just as um, this first chapter of Genesis cuts across ancient worldviews, it's the same with modern religions and modern worldviews. Lots of people think that all religions are essentially the same. They all talk about goodness and love and God and how to find him, you know, and that sort of way. But nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Hinduism has a multiplicity of gods, very much like the, uh, the Babylonian ancient religion. Not one god, many. But if you go to something like Buddhism, uh, Buddhism is apparently the fastest growing non-Christian religion in Australia right now, and still very, very small numbers of people. But in Buddhism, there is no god. Uh, That is, you gain enlightenment through escaping from this physical world. And you need to reject pleasure in order to soar and discover yourself. Now, when you hear that, even even though I've only so briefly summarised it, you understand that that is such a contrast from what we read here in Genesis chapter 1 and a view of this world that the Bible presents. So when you go to the Bible, there is a God and he is good. And he made a good world. Not a world to escape from in order to soar. He made a good world to be enjoyed. A good world that brings pleasure 
and beauty because those things are good. It is so different. And it's the same when you compare with modern world views that are non-religious. Uh, atheism has uh, been on the increase in, in recent years, the belief that there is no God at all, uh, made popular by people like Dawkins and Hitchens. Uh, Lawrence Krauss has been to Australia a num- number of times in recent years. And basically this worldview is that we are we're just random collations of atoms that are caught up in the, the slipstream of a meaningless universe. That's it. Um, I read one author who said, captured it in colloquial terms, he said, we just, we just are, for a little while anyway, and then we aren't. Um, and, and this just pervades, and I suspect many of you have friends who have this view. Uh, Sue and I went to the funeral of someone we've known for 35 years, just at the start of the year. A, uh, a mother with grown-up children, grandchildren. And at this uh, funeral, uh, we were told that, that this woman um, believed that you sort of um, returned to the place you started. Uh, that she, now she was dead, didn't want people to grieve for her, that she'd been sort of absorbed into the universe and that her ashes, she wanted them actually to be taken and scattered at the place where she was born to bring about the sort of circle of her existence. And that she said she lived on through her children and her grandchildren. Right? Now, that, that is Lion King theology, in case you haven't worked it out. That, um, just go on and see that. But that's, that's essentially, and I just felt so sad. That is so different from here in Genesis chapter 1. We have a God who creates, and that God gives meaning and purpose. Humanity, they are at the pinnacle of his creation. We're imbued with value, and we'll explore that, particularly as we come back to that next week. And we are made for a relationship with God, and that is meant to endure for all eternity. That is uh, what this part of the Bible is talking about, that worldview. Or environmentalism. Let's move from atheism to environmentalism. Uh, this is a huge issue that's uh, been picked up in, in recent years here in Australia, but all around the world. Global warming, uh, rising sea levels, carbon, carbon gas emissions, uh, coal-fired power, uh, all sorts of issues that we're wrestling with. A world population that's rapidly increasing and outstripping the sustainability of our planet. Uh, Can I say that when you read this part of the Bible, what you discover is that there is God who has made this world. And therefore those who read it and are in a relationship with the God who made it, uh, we should understand that part of our role, and we'll come back to this next week, is to, is to look after, to steward this world in line with the Creator's intentions. Christians should have an enormous amount to contribute to this debate and understanding of how we sit in this world and how it works. But can I say that for some, uh, creation is actually their God. Uh, it's a pantheistic worldview. They see God in creation or caught by creation. And so meaning and purpose come from the created world around them. 
And often on this view, um, animals are just as valuable as human beings because they are. They're, they're part of the creation. Therefore, should be treated equally, which is why you can hear some environmentalists talking about the, the murder of whales or elephants uh, because they equate the nature of animals in exactly the same way they would human beings or do it the reverse sort of order. But can I say... Genesis contradicts that way of thinking. That is, God is certainly mirrored in some respects in what he's made, but he's not in creation. That's not the reality. We won't find God in a tree or in a rock. He's separate from creation. And again, it is God who gives creation its value and purpose. Now, we'll revisit this next week when we talk about humanity being made in the image of God. Uh, But the reality is God has made us uh, with distinct purpose and role. Uh, So if you have the the last white rhinoceros on the face of the planet charging down uh, an old man in one of the poorest overpopulated countries on the face of the planet and you had the ability to save either the old man who might die within weeks or the last white rhinoceros, right? You choose the man every time uh, because people are created in the image of God. Uh, the rhinoceros is not. It, there's an order that's given here. I'm not saying we shouldn't look after white rhinoceroses. Don't get me wrong. Um, but what I am saying is that God helps us to understand our place in this planet environmentalism. But here's the religious worldview that I think dominates Australia and most of the Western world. It is materialism and hedonism. That is, the goal of life becomes the acquisition of stuff or experiences. And, and I think if you're trying to capture the heart of our nation, then this is it. And wasn't it highlighted so, so well in the recent election? What did the election turn on? What were the big drumbeats that kept occurring on both sides of, of the major parties? How's the economy going? Can the government dis, you know, deliver on a standard of living, you know, a living wage, uh, franking credits, home ownership, superannuation, negative gearing? These are the things. Dominate. Now, I'm not saying they're irrelevant for parties to be thinking about. All I'm saying is that the narrative of our nation is driven by the economy. That is essentially materialistic and hedonistic in its concern, our welfare and our being. Genesis is really clear. Friends, we do not get our meaning from the creation. We get our meaning from God who made us and the whole world. Do you understand? It's all back to front if you get it the wrong way around. Get our, our meaning from God who made us actually to look after the world. Not from the world that we're meant to look after telling us who we are as we go back up the chain. Right? It is so clear and our nation just operates all backwards. Let me try and uh, grab a couple of these ideas together just as I, I close ever so briefly. All right? What does it mean to believe in the God who created 
everything. Now, I do want to say it will have implications for a worldview that's based on atheistic biological evolution. It will obviously have huge implications. But I think actually this part of the Bible speaks to more essential things and more important things. When you understand and are face-to-face with the creator God, friends, it is incredibly humbling. Uh, It is just so overwhelming Uh, when you understand that the nature of a God who can create the whole universe. And yet the fact that that God takes an interest in us. Um, Listen to Psalm chapter 8 as the psalmist reflects on this truth. When I consider the heavens and the wear of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. Isn't that a lovely picture? Of God just sort of, it's like needlework, you know, or uh, uh, we're playing stick-on on on a wall plaque. You know, God pops the moon and the sun into place, you know, the authority. The moon and the sun, which you set in place. But then there's this question. What is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them? Uh, Do do you get that? Uh, Humility, but also accountability. See, when you uh, read through these opening chapters of the Bible, you realise that, that God is the world owner. Uh, it's all his. And that we are, in effect, tenants or sub-tenants in his world. If you've ever rented a property, you know you have an accountability to the owner of the property to look after the property in accordance with their desires on that property. Well, it's like that with the whole world. This is God's world. And we are the sub-tenants who are entrusted with responsibilities. We live in God's world. We need to bear that in mind. Humbling, accountable. But I want to finish on a slightly different note. And so that when you understand in a face-to-face with the God of Genesis chapter 1, then you're aware that this is a God that you can trust he's a god you can trust um i now have um uh, four grandchildren one on the way uh my daughter has two children lily and ollie ollie is uh two years old now but i remember when he was around at our place a few months ago uh, our house has this wooden sort of staircase going upstairs to a bedroom and it has sort of 10 wooden stairs and eight wooden stairs uh, and is fairly steep now I'm quite open about this. I'm a helicopter grandparent. You know, I worry about my kids. I don't think I'd let my just under two-year-old grandchild go up and down these wooden stairs, steep wooden stairs. I'd be fearful of what damage could happen to him. But I try not to tell my children what I'm thinking. I just sort of hover, you know, just in case, you know. (laughs) Anyway, Ollie, as is his wont, went barreling up these stairs, just under two, and got to the top. And uh, hovering Papa was around the bottom of these stairs waiting for him to come back down. And then I hear him coming down, right, boom, 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 down the first eight stairs, turns the corner on the landing and sees me at the bottom of the stairs, right? And he 
smiled at me, and then did something he'd never done before. <laughs> he took two steps and jumped, just like that. <laughs> and uh, my, my heart was in my, my mouth, you know, like, you know, just, yeah, you know. There were two things going on at that point, right? He foolishly thought that his papa had the power to actually rescue him, right? That wasn't very smart, actually, but he did, right? And the second thing is, he thought I, I had the disposition to want to do it. He thought I loved him, right? Now, he got that bit right. Uh, you know, that is, he trusted me and had confidence in my power to rescue Now, I caught him. Right? And he was delighted. I think he's now doing it every time if I'm at the bottom of the stairs, you know, which is not a good pattern. And I can see why his parents don't do it. You know, like, but you see, trust and confidence. Friends, this opening chapter of the Bible, it sets in place the reasons why we can trust God very, very clearly. He has power and authority, uh, unimaginable capacity. So you can trust him on that front. But this part of the Bible also presents us with a God who is full of grace and goodness. It's actually written into the very fabric of a world that's created with beauty and unity, a world that is full of his generosity and his goodness. Now, they're qualities, actually, that are rejected when you get to chapter 3 of the Bible, uh, the fall of humanity. But then even when people turn their back on God, the storyline of the Bible is all about a God who wants to lavish his generosity on people, his goodness and his grace, his mercy on all that he has made, but especially humanity. And so when you get to the New Testament, it actually reaches a crescendo because ultimately the very character of God that's imbued in creation is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 speaks of Jesus in this way. All things were created through him, that is Jesus, and in him all things hold together. A good God who through his son, through whom everything was made, is redeeming people back to himself so that we can enjoy him forever uh, in line with the way he created this world. Friends, we come here to Genesis chapter 1 and it's so confronting and so arresting in terms of the way in which we think about life. We're introduced to a God who has unimaginably awesome capacity. But we're also introduced to a God that you can trust with your life. It is, a, it is a wonderful insight to the very nature of the one who made us for himself. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you're a God who has created a good world. And you've done it with extraordinary flair and power and capacity. But we also recognise that uh, the very creation of the world is infused with your purpose of love and mercy and grace. And Father, we pray that you will help us to keep growing in our appreciation of who you are, our delight in you and our desire to live in line with your intentions and purposes. 
Father, help us to recognize that in the Lord Jesus, you've uh, graciously poured out uh, your kindness on us, offering forgiveness and mercy uh, through the one who gave his life so we could be forgiven and have life for all eternity with you. Father, we pray that our lives will find their centre in you and in knowing you more and more as you reveal yourself to us. So, Father, graciously go before us and help us to uh, keep understanding and pondering life in your world, in your service. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.